everyone. Can you hear that leaf blower in the background? Everybody, uh, please don't tell James Fallows that I live in a neighborhood where people still use leaf blowers. Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. Welcome back to my ongoing, <laughs> I've been saying year-long series on David Graeber's book, Debt. I think I might still be on track for it to take about a year, but pretty soon it's going to be more than a year-long series, I think. Um, we'll see. I'm behind. Uh, if this is your first episode of this podcast, I, uh, I do recommend going back and checking out the prequel episodes, which are called Against Economics. I've got episodes in chapters 1, 2, and 3, as well as discussions of the book um, with Eleanor Yanaga, Cory Doctorow, and Bill Maurer. This is chapter four, uh, Cruelty and Redemption. Dead chapter four starts off with a recap and summing up of the last chapter, uh, the twin nature of money, both as a product of the debt we owe each other horizontally as commercial actors and the debt that we owe society vertically for being born. This is again in Graeber's terms, the myth of barter and the myth of primordial debt. From there, Graeber gets into the questions of debt and morality with uh, the two people that I think are the most interesting thinkers on this question, Jesus and Nietzsche, which is going to give me a second to jump off on a slightly different point and also announce the guest for this month. Um, the topic is that Graeber is wrong. For example, he talks about how medieval people in Europe hunted witches in which they didn't actually hunt witches. There are clear factual errors in this book. There's a really famous one about how Apple was formed that was removed from the revised edition. I, I don't have that edition, so I don't even know the Apple wrong thing. And that Apple story became uh, a reason for very serious people, people like Brad DeLong, to just dismiss the book. And then Graeber defended himself, I think, poorly on that Apple thing. Um, so that defense was embarrassing, but more embarrassing, I think, was the pile-on from center-left establishment types who thought they could debunk Graeber's big ideas by pointing out that he was wrong about how Apple was formed. Many economists, Brad DeLong, again, is a good example, simply did not take this book seriously. And Graeber got really offended and made some attacks on them that I think probably weren't completely fair, but there were some good points in there. He did accuse them of demeaning and delegitimizing him. And gosh, I understand that. Ever since I've been talking about anarchism i've had so much more interest in my work so much energy so many young people emailing me and also people who are just like you must not know what you're talking about because you're interested in anarchism graber i think took these delegitimizing attacks and tried to delegitimize his opponents it was icky it was awful a lot of this happened in the philosophy blog crooked timber you can see some of it still i'll put a link on the show notes and one of those bloggers henry farrell wrote a really interesting look back on the Graeber kerfuffle recently, and Henry is going to be my next guest on this series, so we can talk about this with him. All right, so where am I going with all of this, besides announcing my next guest for the show? I brought this up for two reasons. First, I wanted to acknowledge that some of the mainstream critiques of this book were fair and that Graeber got factual stuff wrong. I think that a lot of the treatment was unfair and the attacks went too far, but when people said Graeber got things wrong in this book, they were right. And I just, I'm such a fan of Graeber that I wanted to take a moment and make this point clear. There are lots of errors, just factual errors in this book. On the other hand, I talked about this a bit with Cory Doctorow. 
All books are filled with factual errors. I don't think this book is unusually filled with errors. In fact, I think it's unusually accurate considering the vast history covered. But it covers an unusually vast amount of history. And so there are things in there that Graeber is just wrong about. I am not an expert on ancient Sumer. Neither is Graeber. I'm sure an expert on ancient Sumer could tell us what he did wrong, and you could take that blog post and run with it if you wanted to debunk Graeber. That's the end of that story. But of course, even I occasionally disagree with Graeber about ideas. And this chapter does have places where I disagree with him. I think he's wrong about Nietzsche in this chapter, and I think he's wrong about Jesus. That doesn't make the argument of this chapter wrong. In fact, I think the argument in this chapter would be stronger if he used Jesus and Nietzsche the way I want to. These aren't factual questions. It's just I'm not convinced by his specific readings of these thinkers because he's kind of cautious and moderate when he reads them, and I want to go further with both of them. Let me try and explain that briefly before I get on with the chapter. And I know, I know, I need to get on with the chapter. Starting with Jesus, I, I did two episodes on Jesus near the beginning of the podcast, and my argument, and I know this is a fairly standard argument, is that there was a historical Jesus, we can call him Jesus of Nazareth, who was not just a communist revolutionary, but really specifically an anarchist communist revolutionary. And that's why in the Roman Empire, women and slaves were most likely to be Christians because Jesus was an anti-hierarchy revolutionary. Then something happened. Really, a lot of things happened, starting with Constantine becoming a Christian, and then we end up with this guy, Jesus Christ, who is not the historical Jesus of Nazareth, but is a prophet who tells us that slavery is okay and war is good as long as it's against Muslims. He also says that heaven is not a place on earth, but is somewhere else, in this very platonic way, that is not very anarchist. And Graeber seems to accept that this platonic Jesus Christ was at least latent in the stories of Jesus of Nazareth. Here's a quote. Graeber says, There's the lingering suggestion that we really couldn't live up to Jesus' standards even if we tried. One of the things that makes the Jesus of the New Testament such a tantalizing character is that it's never clear what he's telling us. Everything can be read two ways. When he calls on his followers to forgive all debts, refuse to cast the first stone, turn the other cheek, love their enemies, to hand over their possessions to the poor. Is he really expecting them to do this? Or are such demands just a way of throwing in their faces that, since we are clearly not prepared to act this way, we are all sinners whose salvation can only come in another world? A position that can be, and has been, used to justify almost anything. Listeners, I think this is just bullshit. Graeber is wrong Jesus was a social revolutionary. He thought a better world was possible, and he wanted to shift our moral imagination. He was demanding the impossible. I think Graeber is doing exactly to Jesus what people always do to social revolutionaries, explaining why their dreams are unrealistic and they are demanding the impossible. Honestly, I find this moment really un-Graeber. I think Graeber is just using the kind of 21st century clever common sense that we do all the time with ancient texts. For example, Plato hated the poets. And so in his imaginary city, the Republic, all poetry is forbidden. And pretty much everyone I've ever seen analyze Plato has some explanation of how, of course, Plato didn't really mean there was no poetry allowed in the Republic. Because, of course, he wouldn't say that because he was really poet and he loved poetry, blah, blah, blah. It's just they love Plato and they love literature 
So they've made up a Plato who says they can have what they want. They just need to accept that although they like Plato, they disagree with him about literature. Plato's just wrong. So lots of so-called Christians love Jesus, but they also love things that Jesus says is bad, like money and hierarchy. So they just made up a version of Jesus who lets them have both. Jesus really did say that you should give everything up and love everyone. There's no reason to explain that actually this was him showing us that you couldn't truly be a follower of Jesus and you had to only follow Jesus after you die in heaven. What the fuck? He just he just told people to live that way. And he was kind of an asshole to people who said they wanted to be his disciples, but they weren't willing to give up property, leave their families, and practice small-scale communism. Just accept that Jesus was an asshole to all bourgeois people, and you've solved the problem of whether Jesus was demanding the impossible. I think Graeber got it wrong. Jesus of Nazareth is the real Jesus. Jesus Christ is not some thought experiment that Jesus of Nazareth was asking us to maybe do. He's just a made-up person who means the opposite things of the real Jesus. We can do the Nietzsche bit a lot faster. In Genealogy of Morals, which is my favorite work by Nietzsche and the most famous Nietzsche work in the English-speaking world, Nietzsche tells a story about how morality came to be based on the fact that guilt and debt are the same word in German. And Nietzsche tells a whole story of how the Christian religion came to be and came to take on these terms guilt and debt. And Engraver says that Nietzsche doesn't actually believe that the story he's telling is true. And I don't buy it. I think Nietzsche thinks the story is true and the etymology isn't perfect. I think Nietzsche's story is true as well. So of course when Graeber says, oh, Nietzsche doesn't mean what he's saying, I disagree with Graeber. I think Nietzsche does mean what he's saying. Again, I think Graeber is relying too much on a like debunking the past sort of thing when instead he's just accept that the crazy 19th century romantic anarchist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche believes some really strange things. Really strange things that I think are right when it comes to debt and guilt and how those came to be and how they came to dominate our life. Okay, that's enough uh, of me disagreeing with Graeber. I know you're not listening to this podcast to hear me disagree with him. Here's where I agree with him completely. Graeber has convinced me, completely and totally convinced me, that Judaism and especially Christianity are entirely about debt. Jews and Christians disagree about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah but they agree that the Messiah was the Redeemer. And if the Messiah is a Redeemer, that means the Messiah is the one who has come to save us from debt. I mean, it's even in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How could I have grown up in a Christian home, read the Bible, read Nietzsche, and somehow missed that Jesus's entire deal was debt? It's, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Maybe it was just too obvious, and that's why I couldn't see it until Graeber showed it to me. So, anyway, let's head towards Jesus and salvation and redemption, both of which, by the way, are financial terms. But first, we should go back to chapter 3 and some stories about money. Here's Graeber starting off chapter 4 with, again, a call back to chapter 3. The reader may have noticed that there is an unresolved debate between those who see money as a commodity and those who see it as an IOU. Which one is it? By now, the answer should be obvious. It's both. Keith Hart, probably the best-known current anthropological authority on the subject, pointed this out many years ago. There are, he famously observed, two sides to any coin. And here's a quote from Keith Hart. 
that Graeber is quoting. Look at a coin from your pocket. On the one side is heads, the symbol of the political authority which minted the coin. On the other side is tails, the precise specification of the amount the coin is worth as payment in exchange. One side reminds us that states underwrite currencies and that money is originally a relation between persons and society, a token perhaps. The other reveals the coin as a thing capable of entering into definite relations with other things. And Bill Maurer brought this quote up as well. I actually don't understand this quote. I don't know what it means to be a thing in definite relation versus a token that's a relation between persons and society. I, I've, I'm just going to have to accept that I don't get it. But I can make sense of this if we use Graeber's terms from the previous chapter. The head side of money reminds us to render unto Caesar. Money comes from a sovereign state, and we owe our money to that sovereign state, whether that state is ruled by a democratic electorate or a military dictator. The flip side reminds us of the myth of barter, that money is about exchanging things. And the fact that the same coin does both of those things supports Graeber's big claim so far in this book, that the market and the state are cooperative, collaborative, co-constitutive, and therefore not opposed to one another the way the capitalists and the socialists want you to think they are. So skipping over some anthropological bits about how neighbors don't need barter, here's Graeber's explanation of how those two sides of the coins pull together. A system of pure credit money would have serious inconveniences as well. Credit money is based on trust, and in competitive markets, trust itself becomes a scarce commodity. This is particularly true of dealings between strangers. Within the Roman Empire, a silver coin stamped with the image of Tiberius might have circulated at a value considerably higher than the value of the silver it contained. Ancient coins invariably circulated at a value higher than their metal content. This was largely because Tiberius's government was willing to accept them at face value. However, the Persian government probably wasn't, and the Mauryan and Chinese governments certainly weren't. Very large numbers of Roman gold and silver coins did end up in India and even China. This is presumably the main reason they were made of gold and silver to begin with. So, breaking in briefly here, hard money, the technical term is specie. I'm not even sure how to pronounce that. Um, due to the two sides of this coin is kind of hard money and kind of not hard money at the same time. So, if there's silver coins stamped by the state, it's worth a certain amount of money because it's silver but it's also worth a certain amount of money because it was stamped with the emperor's face. It's not valuable because of the face or because of the silver. It's valuable because of both of them at the same time. Keep that in your mind as we continue with Graver's discussion. Thus, money is almost always something hovering between a commodity and a debt token. That is precisely why coins, pieces of silver or gold that are already valuable commodities in themselves, but that being stamped with the emblem of a local political authority become even more valuable, still sit in our heads as the quintessential form of money. They most perfectly straddle the divide that defines what money is in the first place. What's more, the relation between the two was a matter of constant political contestation. All right, end of Graeber quote. Now, this political contestation is really important for Graeber, as we'll see in just a moment. If the value of the money was just because you owed the sovereign, it could have been paper all along, or one of those old Sumerian sticks that got broken in half. If the value of the money was just metal, 
there was no reason to make money out of the precious metals. You could just weigh the metals directly. So the state has been interested in making money more about debt and less about a commodity. And the market has been interested in making money a pure commodity and not about debt to the sovereign. And this push and pull, who's going to win, the government or the market, is pretty much the argument between left and right in the 21st century. And that argument has been going on for the past 5,000 years. And our push and pull between market and state is just one more chapter. But if you go back before that moment, or just imagine a different world, you can drop both of these ways of thinking. Or as Graeber puts it, in other words, the battle between state and market, between governments and merchants, is not inherent to the human condition. All right. This is so important because this push and pull between the state and the market is how we conceive of politics. And if we can see that it was historically created, we can get into a different politics. And that's why we're going to get into Nietzsche territory, because Nietzsche was one of the first and so probably the greatest thinker at explaining how the stuff that feels normal to us was created historically. Graeber really needs to make this point because, as he puts it, the myth of barter and the myth of primordial debt are aligned. Quote, one assumes the other. It's only once we can imagine human life as a series of commercial transactions that we're capable of seeing our relation to the universe in terms of debt. Before we get to Graeber's reading of Nietzsche, let me briefly explain Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, that's impossible. Let me say, um, let me briefly say a few things about Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Explain Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Graham, what were you thinking? Um, first is exactly what it sounds like. It's an evolutionary history of how morality came to be. And for Graeber's purposes, as we'll see, what's really important is that for Nietzsche, debt, which is the ability to make a financial promise, is the heart of what made morality as it exists right now. Nietzsche is against morality. He's against society. Honestly, in a lot of his works, he seems sort of like he's against everything. But more or less, to try and pin Nietzsche down in a way that he never allows himself to be pinned down, Nietzsche thinks that the original form of morality was created when the powerful people took over society. And those powerful people, you can call them the nobles or the aristocrats, took what they wanted from the meek and the weak. And if they didn't get what they wanted, well, that was the fault of the meek, who weren't delivering. So that made the meek bad. Guilty, we could say. And that also made them indebted, because they owed the nobles something. And you can see now that guilt and debt are the same thing. And the powerful, the nobles, tortured the meek because they were guilty and also indebted. If the nobles couldn't get a pound of gold out of the meek, they would get a pound of flesh out of the meek. Surely the peasants had to pay their debts. Now Nietzsche says, and yeah, this is a part where I agree with Graeber, this story isn't real, but also it's metaphorically true, even though it's not literally true. It's also really funny. Nietzsche says the meek got together in a dark room and decided they weren't having it anymore. They were going to make up a new morality. They didn't owe anybody a pound of flesh. And since they had been tortured so much and had their children enslaved and murdered, they were the ones who were owed a pound of flesh. 
So now, instead of the powerful owning the meek and the meek owe the powerful, the powerful owe something to the meek. And the human embodiment of this new morality in which it's the torturers who owe the tortured and not the other way around is Jesus. In this version of morality, it's cruelty that's bad. So therefore the bad people were the so-called aristocrats or nobles. Now we can call them the warlords, the dictators, the enslavers. So they owe us. They are in our debt for being so cruel to us. So now we can dish punishment out to them. We get to torture the torturers. That's what these people are imagining in this dark room in which they invent a new counter-morality. And the word for this counter-morality is, is slave morality or Christianity or maybe socialism. That's how Nietzsche sees it. All right, so now that you've gotten a quick primer on the main story of genealogy of morals, I can tell you that Graeber doesn't really focus on that. Instead, he focuses on a few paragraphs where Nietzsche makes it clear that the original sense of debt and guilt come from that original quantification of resources, that moment when the marketplace and the state were co-created. Here's Graeber. Nietzsche's on the genealogy of morals appeared in 1887. In it, he begins with an argument that might well have been taken directly from Adam Smith, but he takes it a step further than Smith ever dared to, insisting that not just barter, but buying and selling itself precede any other form of human relationship. And then Graeber gives a long Nietzsche quote. I'm not giving you all of it, but here's most of it. This is Nietzsche, quoted by Graeber. The feeling of personal obligation has its origin in the oldest and most primitive personal relationship there is, in the relationship between seller and buyer, creditor and debtor. Here, for the first time, one person moved up against another person. Here, an individual measured himself against another individual. We have found no civilization still at such a low level that something of this relationship is not already perceptible. To set prices, to measure values, to think up equivalencies, to exchange things, that preoccupied man's very first thinking to such a degree that in a certain sense, it's what thinking itself is. Selling and buying, together with their psychological attributes, are even older than the beginnings of any form of social organization and groupings. Out of the most rudimentary form of personal legal rights, the budding feeling of exchange, contract, guilt, law, duty, and compensation was instead first transferred to the crudest and earliest social structures. All right, that's the end of the quote. To try and sum it up briefly, what Nietzsche is saying, um, before there was buying and selling, before there was quantifiable relationships between humans, there were no social relationships between humans. And this is the bit that Graeber says he thinks Nietzsche is kidding. Maybe so. Who knows? But Nietzsche says once humans learned to buy and sell, once they learned to compare things and assign them values, then and only then did they start getting into relationships with one another. There was no society. <laughs> Perhaps there wasn't even family before there was buying and selling. And as soon as you have this, you get the power dynamic I mentioned in the first great morality that Nietzsche discusses, the master morality. The masters have power over slaves because they are worth more than them. They are stronger, therefore better, therefore they are the creditors. Now here's Graeber going on to the next step. And this is not a quote from Nietzsche, this is Graeber summarizing Nietzsche. When humans did begin to form communities, Nietzsche continues, they necessarily began to imagine their relationship to the community in these terms. 
The tribe provides them with peace and security. They are therefore in its debt. Obeying its laws is a way of paying it back, paying your debt to society again. In other words, this is still Graeber. For Nietzsche, starting with Adam Smith's assumptions about human nature means we must necessarily end up with something very much along the lines of primordial debt theory. On the other hand, it is because of our feeling of debt to the ancestors that we obey the ancestral laws. This is why we feel that the community has the right to react like an angry creditor and punish us for our transgressions if we break them. In a larger sense, we develop a creeping feeling that we could never really pay back the ancestors, that no sacrifice, not even the sacrifice of our firstborn, will ever truly redeem us. So, according to Graeber slash Nietzsche, we start with owing one another, and then eventually we owe society. <laughs> and then our society becomes like the gods, and we owe them indefinitely, and there's no way to get out of this. Graeber again takes this brief segue to explain that Nietzsche didn't actually mean this, and... Yes, it is a silly way to imagine prehistoric people, but I still think that Nietzsche really does mean that social relations, at least all the social relations that we can think through, grew out of this sense of debt morality. But whatever. Whether the story is historically true or not doesn't matter. The story resonates with us. We owe the past, our society, the gods, whoever. We owe them everything. And morality, the rules of right and wrong, are simply an expression of those debts we owe. Ultimately, we owe everything to Yahweh, God, the universe, not the king. This is when that second form of morals shows up. When it turns out that Jesus saves us so that our debt is paid, not by the big strong guy, but to the big strong guy, the ultimate king, Yahweh. But we still owe someone, and the person we owe is not the warrior figure, but one of the meek. Here's Nietzsche, again quoted by Graeber. Finally, with the impossibility of discharging the debt, people also come up with the notion that it is impossible to remove the penance, the idea that it cannot be paid off quote, eternal punishment, until all of a sudden we confront the paradoxical and horrifying expedient with which a martyred humanity found temporary relief, that stroke of genius of Christianity, God sacrificing himself for the guilt of human beings, God paying himself back with himself. God is the only one who can redeem man from what for human beings has become impossible to redeem. The creditor sacrificing himself for the debtor, out of love, can people believe that out of love for his debtor? <laughs> so now we've gotten to Jesus via Nietzsche. And this is the stroke of genius according to Nietzsche, the paradox of Christianity. We owe everything to God and there's no way we can pay everything to God. So God pays himself himself thereby negating this cosmic circle we can't pay back, except now we owe everything to Jesus, who is God still. So we haven't actually gotten out of this owing. We've just substituted our owing to this meek lamb figure instead of our owing to this powerful warrior figure. Now we get to a really fascinating bit, which is where Graeber argues, and I've since learned this is a pretty standard argument, but I had never seen it before that pretty much all of the great world religions came about 
out of these arguments about debt and who we owed and where power fits into that and who owes who. Indeed, Graeber says, to one degree or another, all the major world religions do this. The reason is that all of them, from Zoroastrianism to Islam, arose amidst intense arguments about the role of money and the market in human life, and particularly about what these institutions meant for fundamental questions of what human beings owed to one another. Question of debt and arguments about debt ran through every aspect of the political life of the time. These arguments were set amidst revolts, petitions, reformist movements. Some such movements gained allies in the temples and palaces. Others were brutally suppressed. Most of the terms, slogans, and specific issues being debated, though, have been lost to history. So according to Graeber, if you look at all these ancient texts from this axial age, 2,000 to 5,000 years ago, all these great states were being created, and also all the great world religions were being created, and they were all about this problem of debt. What has come down to us as the great world traditions were actually just present-day political arguments about debt and morality. Most of those arguments about debt and morality have been lost. Some of them got written down into books and turned into sacred texts. And Graeber says how some of those religious traditions ended up on the side of the debtors and some ended up against the debtors. And he says the Judeo-Christian tradition was definitely on the side of the debtors, at least in terms of what you owe the king, if not what you owe God. Here's Graeber. Freedom in the Bible, as in Mesopotamia, came to refer above all to release from the effects of debt. Over time, the history of the Jewish people itself came to be interpreted in this light. The liberation from bondage in Egypt was God's first paradigmatic act of redemption. The historical tribulations of the Jews, defeat, conquest, exile, were seen as misfortunes that would eventually lead to a final redemption with the coming of the Messiah. Though this could only be accomplished, prophets such as Jeremiah warned them, after the Jewish people truly repented of their sins, carrying each other off into bondage, whoring after false gods, the violations of the commandments, etc. In this light, the adoption of the term by Christians is hardly surprising. Redemption was a release from one's burden of sin and guilt. And the end of history would be that moment when all slates are wiped clean and all debts finally lifted, when a great blast from angelic trumpets will announce the final jubilee. If so, redemption is no longer about buying something back. It's really more a matter of destroying the entire system of accounting. In many Middle Eastern cities, this was literally true. One of the common acts during debt cancellation was the ceremonial destruction of the tablets on which financial records had been kept, an act to be repeated, much less officially, in just about every major peasant revolt in history. Okay, that's the end of the Graeber quote. His point is that, and this gets tricky when we talk about what you owe God, but it makes sense in terms of what you owe the earth. In the Judeo-Christian religion, the final jubilee was not the debt being paid back, but the debt system being destroyed. That's what Jubilee means. That's what redemption means. Not your debts are paid off now, but hey, you'll owe me tomorrow, but no more owing. From there, Graeber goes on to talk about Jesus's parable 
of the debtor, which is really quite fascinating. And in my original version of the script, I walked through it and it was just too complicated. So I'll leave that there and let um, Gerard Winstanley, guest starring over from the English Revolution podcast series, sum up this position quite clearly. For after our work of the earthly community is advanced, we must make use of gold and silver, as we do of other metals, but not to buy and sell withal. For buying and selling is the great cheat that robs and steals the earth one from another. It is that which makes some lords, others beggars, some rulers, others to be ruled, and makes great murderers and thieves to be imprisoners and hangers of little ones or of sincere-hearted men. And while we are made to labor the earth together with one consent and willing mind, and while we are made free that everyone, friend and foe, shall enjoy the benefit of their creation, that is, to have food and raiment from the earth, their mother, and everyone subject to give account of his thoughts, words, and actions to none, but to the one only righteous judge and prince of peace, the spirit of righteousness that dwells, and that is now rising up to rule in every creature and in the whole globe. We say, while we are made to hinder no man of his privileges given him in his creation, equal to one as to another, what law then can you make to take hold upon us, but laws of oppression and tyranny that shall enthrall or spill the blood of the innocent. And so yourselves, your judges, lawyers, and justices shall be found to be the greatest transgressors in and over mankind. So when Stanley saw through 1700 years of confusion to see that it's quite simple, the kingdom of God on earth is a real place in which all of the judgment, all of the debt, everything is put aside. Buying and selling leads to winners and losers, which is to say debtors and creditors, and thus destroys the community. And the heart of all this is equality on earth. If you have buying and selling, you end up with inequality. And if you have buying and selling, you also have a form of equality because only equals can truly buy and sell with one another. That's a point Graeber makes about the parable of the debtor servant. But buying and selling, which can only be done by equals, creates inequality. And Graeber says that this answers a curious political question. Why do people rise up against debts constantly throughout history when they rise up against other forms of coercion and oppression less frequently? The answer is the supposed equality inherent in commerce and then the inequality that it simultaneously creates. Here's Graeber. What makes debt different is that it is premised on an assumption of equality. To be a slave or lower caste is to be intrinsically inferior. We are dealing with relations of unadulterated hierarchy. In the case of debt, we are dealing with two individuals who begin as equal parties to a contract. Legally, at least as far as the contract is concerned, they are the same. One can imagine the reaction of a farmer who went up to the house of a wealthy cousin on the assumption that humans help each other and ended up a year or two later watching his vineyard seized and his sons and daughters led away. Such behavior could be justified in legal terms by insisting that the loan was not a form of mutual aid, but a commercial relationship. A contract is a contract. It also required a certain reliable access to superior force. But it could only have felt like a terrible betrayal. What's more, framing it as a breach of contract meant stating that this was, in fact, a moral issue. These two parties ought to be equals, but one had failed to honor the bargain. Psychologically, this can only have made the indignity of the debtor's condition all the more painful, since it made it possible to say that it was his own turpitude that sealed his daughter's fate. 
but that just made the motive all the more compelling to throw back the moral aspersions. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. We are all the same people. We have a responsibility to take account of one another's needs and interests. How then could my brother do this to me? Through most of history, when overt political conflict between classes did appear, it took the form of pleas for debt cancellation, the freeing of those in bondage, and usually a more just reallocation of the land. What we see in the Bible and other religious traditions are traces of the moral arguments by which such claims were justified, usually subject to all sorts of imaginative twists and turns, but inevitably to some degree incorporating the language of the marketplace itself. All right, that's the end of that quote, or an abbreviated version of that quote. And we're back to the next turn of the dialectic. If you want to defeat the harms done by debt, you can use religion. But to make your religion make sense, you start calling your religious leader the Redeemer, and then you've got your religious leader right back as part of the marketplace again. And this, I think, is why Christianity and the other religious attempts to free us from debt haven't worked. In Christianity, you can see this is part of the reason why Jesus Christ is created to shift the marketplace into the other world, but then the other world is inaccessible and you can't make one Stanley's heaven on earth. These religious attempts at redemption use the language of debt and owing in an attempt to be anti-debt, but they're also still using the language of debt and owing. And you'll be trapped in this cycle of temporary redemption and ultimate indebtedness until we burst out of this with this clarion call that goes against debt correctly, this jubilee that has to be a jubilee on earth, not a jubilee in the next world. And that's why I gave you that one Stanley quote, because he is, in my opinion, the person who stated this call for an earthly jubilee better than anyone else in the entire anarchist communist tradition or in any other tradition. All right, that's it for now. Um, I haven't recorded my conversation with Henry Farrell yet, but hopefully you'll have a conversation between him and me on debt pretty soon. Uh, debt discussion number four. As always, you can find me at everydayanarchism.com, which is where you can support the show financially or sign up to my newsletter, which, as I'm always saying, I hope to have come out more often. You can also email me if you have questions or comments at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, spread the word. Tell a friend. Rate the show on Apple or Spotify. Share on social media. Anything like that helps so much. As always, the music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>